I invite our friends who are heading over to the toddler nursery and to children's church to be dismissed at this time. If you're remaining in the sanctuary, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 49. Psalm chapter 49. Psalm chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb and I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever that they're dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Selah. As sheep, they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for shale to consume so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of shale, for he will receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich and when the glory of his house is increased. And when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, He shall go to the generation of his fathers and they will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning we pray as we approach a very difficult and profound topic. Father, as we contemplate our mortality, as we contemplate the reality of death, And Father, as we think through those things that we place our trust and our hope in that cannot deliver us from the inevitable end point of death. Father, may our focus shift from this realm and the hopes supplied by this realm and the peace of mind given by the things that we can attain here and now. And may it be cast upon eternity. May it be cast upon the everlasting. Father, may we look to the one who truly can deliver us from death. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So this morning, um, I've made it real clear along the way that I absolutely love the Psalms. You're not supposed to have a favorite book in the Bible, but it's my favorite book in the Bible. And there are some Psalms that are just filled with hope and encouragement and joy and peace. You know, Psalm 23 and Psalm 19 and a whole host of others. And then there's some that are incredibly convicting that really challenge the way that we think about how we should repent of sin. Psalm 51 and some of some of those. And and then there's some that are just incredibly disturbing. You know, the imprecatory Psalms, you know, praying your enemies into damnation, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the one that takes the cake, you know, and, and God, may you dash their babies against the rock. I mean, you've got to be really sideways with somebody when you're praying that God will kill their kids. Like, and that's in the Psalms, like it's there. And so there's stuff in there that's just kind of heavy and like, whoa, uh, you know. And then there's some Psalms like this one that grab a hold of really uncomfortable topics. And this morning... I know a lot of you have Bibles like mine that have headers, you know, these bold headers. They kind of tell you what the theme of that chapter is. And mine says the folly of trusting riches. That's not really what the psalm is about. Praise the Lord. That's not part of the inspired text of God. That's some editorial comment given by whoever published this particular Bible. Yes, it does talk about riches and it does talk about rich people and it does talk about people's pride in their riches. But the ultimate theme of this particular psalm is the reality of death. The reality of death. And I don't want to fast forward too far because I'm going to make this point again in just a second. But the reason why this is an uncomfortable topic, when people want to talk openly and plainly about the reality of death, is because everyone dies. But we want to kind of live life like that's not true. We sort of avoid the notion. And so unless you are culturally speaking... At an age where death is a more imminent reality for you. Which in our culture, I think the numbers have moved up because of the general health of people. So I think women live to be about 80 now. Men live to be about 77. So unless you're kind of in that range or past that range. You know, the the horrible saying you're living on borrowed time, you know. A lot of times you just don't think about it. Kind of act like it's not a thing. The people who think through it are the ones who are either quote unquote close to it or have come close to it at some point in their lives. They got sick. They didn't know if they were going to make it. They were in a horrible accident. They had some tragedy that befell them. And it made them think through, oh, wow. I'm not guaranteed this extra time. But for a person whose life is, quote unquote, just normal. Where you don't have death related tragedy that hits you really close. And you're at an age of life where hey, I've got I've got time. I scan the crowd. We are a relatively young and healthy church. 
Most of the faces here are the faces of those who have told themselves the remarkable lie. I've got time. We don't like talking about death. It makes us really uncomfortable. It probably makes us as uncomfortable as when you go to the family get together with your family from that side of the family. And they want to start talking about politics and who you voted for in the last election. Like you'd almost rather talk about that than death. And so let's talk about the reality of death this morning, because this is what the psalm is about. So the psalmist starts out in the language of a proverb. You notice at the beginning here in the first few verses, um, he, he says it very plainly. He says, I'm going to speak. My mouth's going to speak with wisdom. Verse three, meditation of my heart will be understanding. I'll incline my ear to a proverb. I'll express my riddle on the harp. So this is essentially going to be a sung proverb. Now, what's interesting about this proverb, and this doesn't happen a lot in the in the scripture. It's very few times, especially in the Old Testament, where there's an address outside of what's pertinent to the nation of Israel or the people of Israel. This particular psalm and this particular sung proverb, this particular expression of wisdom is global wisdom. Because here's the thing, death's not just a thing for the nation of Israel. Dealing with death is not just a thing for the Hebrew people. The psalmist is about to address the notion of death. And what does he say? He says, hear this, all peoples, everyone. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, everybody who lives on earth. Whether you're low, whether you're high, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, all of you together. You need to hear what I'm about to say. Why? Because death does not care where you're from or how much you do or don't have. It just doesn't. And so he's about to give a word of wisdom for everyone. And so he asks a question. When we get down to verse 5. The, the psalmist asks a question. Here's the question. Why should I fear in the days of adversity? Which by the way is what we normally do. We hit days of adversity. We hit hard times. And we start to get worried. We start to become anxious. We start to be afraid. And so the psalmist asks the question. Why should I do that? Why should I be afraid? Why should I have fear when hard times come? When the iniquity of my foes surrounds me. So everybody around me is being evil. They're being wicked. Their wickedness is creating an adverse situation on my life. It's creating stress. It's causing pain. It's causing sorrow. Why should I be afraid in the middle of that? And then he speaks to those who trust their wealth. They boast in the abundance of their riches. And then he expresses the point of why you shouldn't be afraid. And it's an unusual point as to why you shouldn't be afraid in the middle of these kinds of circumstances. No one can keep another man from dying. Now, you say, yes, you can, Philip. I work in the medical field and this guy coded and they brought him in and we did the stuff to him and he's alive now and he's doing fine. We kept that guy from dying. Okay, awesome. You going to do that forever? Cool. That's a great story. But are they going to be able to keep him alive every time he comes in the hospital? Are you going to be able to give him some sort of treatment or some help every time this person is about to code out? No, the answer is no. We all know the answer is no to that. 
Ultimately and finally, no human being can keep another human being from death. Can't be done. And notice how he says this. No man can by any means, listen to the language that he uses, redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. And what should he do? He should cease trying forever. And what should he cease trying forever to do? To make that person live on eternally. To make sure that that person does not undergo decay. And then we get to verse 10. And I made this point at the beginning. This is where we need to land though. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. I've been listening to a lot of British people here lately, so this is where this phrase is coming from. And don't be cheeky and talk to me about Elijah and Enoch, okay? Percentage-wise, 99.9999999% of all humans die. Is your name Enoch? No. Are you Elijah? No. You're going to die. Just want to throw that out there. And notice who falls in the category of everyone. It's everyone. The wise men die. So that's like the five or six percent of y'all out there that are actually wise. Don't be offended. Because the stupid and senseless, that's the 30, uh, the, you know, the 96% of the rest of us, I'm including myself in that group. They also perish. The rich and the poor alike, he says, they all die. So whether you're dead rich or you're dead broke, you just end up dead. That's just the reality of it. Whether you're a genius or you have a really hard time factoring basic information. Doesn't matter which end of the educational scale you find yourself on. You die. Your wisdom and your wealth rarely, rarely keep you living a longer life. They can a little, maybe, from the human perspective. Make better choices, have better options, the healthcare, that sort of thing. But at the end of it, it doesn't keep you from dying. Now, for a bunch of primitive people a long, long time ago who didn't have a really good understanding of how the world worked, they sure seem like they have a pretty good understanding of how the world works. It drives me crazy when I hear people say that all the people who wrote the Bible don't really understand how the world works. And they said all of you are going to die. That seems like a pretty good starting point of understanding how the world actually works. No matter how much money you've got, no matter how smart you are, you're still going to die. That's actually profound, is what that is. And having spent time doing what I do, um, I, I've done, Amanda and I were talking about it the other day, I, I've done not less than 100 funerals in my life. It's probably way more than that. Some of those boxes were not as big as they should have been. Those are always really hard. In at least one of those boxes was someone who the testimony of everyone 
who knew that person was, they didn't know Jesus. Probably the hardest one I've ever done. Having to stand up and share words with a crowd of people who know that that person did not know the Lord. Many of them were the way you think it should go. A person who'd lived a long and full life, who loved Christ and their family. And you just get to testify to the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God. Some of those boxes were regular sized boxes, but with people in them whose numbers were a lot lower than they probably should have been. Some of those were tragic and unexpected boxes where the person was just fine weeks before and then they just got sick all of a sudden, unexpectedly. And within weeks, they just weren't there anymore. Some of them were tragic where they didn't even get sick. They just did simple things like got in a car. And they never got back out of that car again. Everyone dies. And it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how smart you are, how pretty you are, how successful you are, what your name is, what accomplishments you have received. Death does not discriminate based on any of those things. And friends, we tell ourselves a profound lie. Notice what it says here in verse 11. Their inner thought, these people who have all this pride, especially in their own success. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. That their dwelling places are to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. Their, their inner thought is that their houses are forever. What, what's interesting, and, and I don't want to get lost in this, but what's really interesting is that in, in some of the, the textual uniqueness of, of this particular Hebrew phrase, there are some translations that instead of it's referencing the inner thought of the person's house, it actually uses a different word there in some of the texts. And it, and it says that their graves are their houses is actually how it is in some of these texts. And, and that's really profound. Think, think that through for a second. You know, let, let's excuse the notion of the future resurrection of life and judgment. And let's, and let's kind of talk through from the human perspective. You're going to live a lot longer in your grave than you do in your house. Say, Philip, this is a super downer sermon today. Hey, this is the benefits of expository preaching. You don't get to skip the stuff that like feels funny in your mouth. It's like I want it to. Hey, Philip, what do you want to what if you just wanted to talk to the people Sunday? What would you I'd want to talk to them about how everybody dies. Yeah, that was I was, it was on my list. Yeah, no, it was what was next. 
And the reality of it is, is that we need to stop lying to ourselves. We need to stop telling ourselves these lies that we have plenty of time. We need to stop telling ourselves these lies that it won't happen to me. We need to stop telling ourselves these lies that somehow death is not an imminent reality because man's life, as the scripture said, is like a vapor. It's like a breath. It's like the grass that grows up and then withers and is gone. It is short lived. And regardless of what your theory is on how old the world is and how old our solar system is and how old our universe is, even if you have it at a stripped down, much smaller number, friend, your 80 years in relationship to the existence of people on this planet is small. Small. It's a flash and it's gone. And we tell ourselves these lies where we trust uh, the things around us. We trust in what we're doing, we trust in who we are. We trust in the efforts that we're putting in to, to preserve our lives. And the scripture actually has a lot to say about that. You are supposed to take care of yourself. Like you're supposed to do things to help make sure you stay alive. Like you're not supposed to be foolish. But even in the middle of all of that, you're going to die. And there's a chorus, if you can imagine, remember this is a song that was sung. There's a chorus in here. What kind of chorus do you put in a song about dying? It's repeated twice. It's in verse 12 and verse 20. It says, but the man in his pomp or in his self-honor, if you want to have a a more pure translation. But man in his self-honor will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. He's like the animals that are destroyed. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read something to you. If you really want to just have your worldview hammered by the Bible, I would encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was having a really bad day. When he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and he just pointed out all of the stuff that nobody wants to point out about how life actually is when he was writing the book of Ecclesiastes and how everything is just total vanity and completely worthless and things are just really bad all the time. You say, Philip, surely that's not. Yeah, that's pretty much Ecclesiastes is about. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 3. We all know Ecclesiastes 3, the first half of the chapter, because of that song. To everything turn to... Anyway, yeah, okay, so there's a time for this and there's a time for that. All right, so we know the first part of Ecclesiastes 3 because of that. But if you keep going through Ecclesiastes 3, he talks about eternity being set in the heart of men. And then this is what he says. When you get down to Ecclesiastes chapter three. In verse starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, this is what he says. He says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same as one dies. So dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. 
And there's no advantage for the man over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast ascends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than for a man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? That's... Solomon being way more philosophical about what's happening in Psalm 49. No matter the level of pride, death comes. Now, if that were the end of the psalm and that were the end of the sermon, this would be an incredibly depressing way to end our worship service. But there's a second half to the song that's being sung in Psalm 49. And the psalmist makes a distinction in Psalm 49 in the deaths of the wicked Against the deaths of the righteous. Friends, hear me this morning. Everyone dies, but not everyone dies the same way. And I'm not talking about mode of death. I'm talking about effect of death. Not everyone dies the same way. Notice what he says here in the second half of this. And, and I just want to tell you, this verse, I've read this verse plenty of times, but it just hit differently this time. Listen to the first half of verse 14. Listen to how profound and yet unsettling this verse is. Now, there's a pronoun in here. It's they and then there. What is that referencing to? It's referencing back to that chorus in verse 12 and verse 13. Those who are foolish Those who in their own honor, you know, are are thinking that death won't affect them. Those who don't recognize that they perish just like the beasts perish. Those who are wicked in their arrogance. Verse 14, as sheep, they, the arrogant wicked, are appointed for shale and death shall be their shepherd. I, mean, I, I don't care how you do or don't feel about poetry. That's eerily beautiful. What he's saying here in this text. As sheep, they are appointed for shale. And death shall be their shepherd. The one that guides them. Through the pasture land of Sheol, the place of the dead. The proud are appointed to Sheol like sheep. Death is their shepherd. They have no form. They have no habitation. And then it makes this unusual shift. Right in the middle of verse 14. That the righteous will rule over them in the morning. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. What in the world does this mean? Well, we get some insight into it in verse 15. The wicked dead go this way. There's this just this angst and this tension and this this unsettling notion of what their existence is like at the point of death. And then notice what happens in verse 15. But I love it when the Bible is saying things that almost come off as rancid. You say, Philip, you can't say that about the Bible. Yes, I can. If you don't know that there's some rancid sounding things in the Bible, you've not read the Bible enough. Or enough of the Bible. 
There are some incredibly unsettling, put a real bad flavor in your mouth stuff in the Bible. That doesn't mean that it's bad. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. That's just how it is. Because guess what? The truth is sometimes unsettling and puts a rancid flavor in your mouth. Like everyone dies. I don't like that. I would rather everyone didn't die. That would be better. But it's just true. I also don't lie that I like that I'm a wretched sinner. Separated from God in an image with Him apart from Jesus Christ. I don't like the fact that there's great damnation and judgment to fall upon people who don't know the Lord once they experience death. I don't like any of that stuff. But guess what? Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. And so what I love when this happens in the Bible is when the Bible's just throwing these haymakers on us and just these things we don't like to think about and these things we don't like to talk about and these things that we'd like just rather ignore and act like they aren't real and that they're not there. And if we just kind of close our eyes, stick our fingers in the air and go, uh, then maybe it's not true and it's not actually happening. And we get it. We get our, our own humanity thrown into our face and, and, the, and, and our mortality and the reality of death and the reality of judgment and the reality of wickedness and all that's just right there glaring at us and then the Bible throws but praise God for three little letters right there but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Hallelujah. Praise God. Friends, there is a distinction in the deaths of the wicked and the righteous. And so as is the normal pattern and habit of Hebrew poetry, the psalmist goes full circle back to not being afraid. Remember before he was like, why should I be afraid? And he never fully answered the question. He kind of left it hanging a little bit. He, he kind of took a weird angle on it. And notice what he says here. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when a man receives great glory and honor and prestige. Now, that's not any old man. He's keeping it in the context of the wicked proud that he's been talking about in the entire psalm. Don't be afraid when the wicked proud man has great success in this life. Why not? For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend. No, notice the language here. His glory won't do what? Descend. After him. Though while he congratulates, he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he will go to the generation of his fathers and they will never see the light. Friends, that's not the language of being redeemed from shale. That's the language of being consumed by shale. Shale being the place where you're being shepherded to by death itself. And then we get the chorus again. Man in his pomp and his self-honor, his wicked self-honor is yet without understanding. It's like the beasts that perish. And you say, well, Philip, what? How, how do we really establish a difference in the death of the wicked and of the righteous? I, I want to go back to something. 
that because we blitz through, we might would miss. I want everyone to go back to verses 7 through 9, right toward the middle section of this psalm. And I want us to see something here. Something that might not would stand out otherwise. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Why not? Because the redemption of his soul is costly. He should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally and that he should not undergo decay. You cannot save anyone from their ultimate death. You should stop trying to do that. You cannot do that. You cannot make someone have eternal life. You can't free anyone from the decay of death. You cannot do that. No man by any means can redeem his brother. Unless that man is also God. Because God can redeem men. What what did the psalmist just say? He just told us that. Look down at verse 15. Let's connect verses 7 through 9 to verse 15. And then let's have a conversation about the God-man Jesus. In verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of shale. Okay, none of you people can do it, but God can do it. Well, what happens if God is also a man? Can he do it then? Can a man redeem his brothers? Can he give ransom to God for them? Even if the the cost of their soul is high? Even even if he wants to give them life eternal, life everlasting, and keep them from undergoing the decay of death, but instead give them immortal bodies that will never perish? Can he do that? Yes, friends, he can. What cost? Jesus Christ is the costly redeemer. What cost was paid by Jesus to do the impossible work of redeeming us from death? Friends, hear me this morning. It is man that sinned. And therefore, man who must pay the penalty for his sin. God cannot simply excuse our sin away. He cannot simply write it off. He can't just put in a verdict of not guilty. He cannot just just pardon without some measure of penalty because it would be a violation of his holiness. It would be a violation of his true godly justice. Man would have paid no penalty at all. There would be this this hanging thing out there in the universe of God's glory being diminished by those bearing his image without that diminishment being repaid. Now, how can fallen man who is mortal and finite and not eternal, who's not omnipresent and omniscient and all powerful, how can mere mortal man Pay back the costly debt of cosmic treason and violation of the glory of God because of his sin. What could we dare pay to recover that which is owed to God because of our sin? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Nothing. So the penalty for our sin per almost every chapter in the Old and New Testament is death. Death 
is our shepherd. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's had for us, while we were yet sinners, had Christ die for us. The Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, stepped down out of his glory, veiled himself in human flesh, yielded himself to the birth of an infant, had to be cared for, had to be fed, had to be nourished, had to be nurtured. He who knew all things had to grow in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. He had to learn the things that he created the knowledge of initially in eternity as the second person of the Trinity. He He had to be held by his mother while cosmically holding her in the power of his own great hand. Simultaneously, great mystery of the incarnation. And he who did not deserve death, he who is king over death, he who could not know death, had to yield himself to not just death, but a wrath Filled death at the hands of his father so that he could remove the penalty of mankind as man, yet infinitely fill the value of that penalty as God because he was the God man because no man can redeem his brother, but God can redeem our souls. And the Lord Jesus Christ came and did both for us. Man. Praise be to God. Jesus Christ is our costly redeemer. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the great work that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That though the reality of death is present to all of us, He has made a distinction in his gospel between the death of the wicked, those who are proud and focused only on their own glory and honor, and the death of the righteous, those who have yielded to the truth of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you that no man can save us and deliver us from death, but that God can and that the God-man Jesus has done it all. And that because of his resurrection from the dead, you have given him a name that's above every name. And that you have given him a name of power. Power to save. And Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.